Let's go the full uh, this thing. Air. What do you call that? Air hostess voice? No. Good afternoon. Welcome one and all to the Dispute and Dim podcast. No, that was very bad. Okay, hey guys, uh, welcome to the Dispute and Dim podcast. Uh, my name is Shreyas Ashok. Joining us today, we have Abhishek Sutke, Chilukana Glohit, Shreyans Padmanabhan and Shivang Singh Chauhan. Um, and today we'll be covering the basics of international law, which means we'll start with an introduction and sources of international law. and then move on to a type of international law called law commonly called as customary international law and then we'll give a basic foundation to the un charter as well um so abhishek if you want to kick things off uh yeah sure so um first thing first i'm really happy to be on this podcast because uh this has been this has been a long standing dream for me to have a podcast of my own and doing it with one of my favorite people who i have gone to numerous conferences with and spoken about this to a large extent is something really exciting um So I think the first thing that we need to touch upon is why uh, the international law exists and what is the ba- what is the basis on which international law is con- uh, constructed on the whole right so my idea of international law is that it is a set of principles and guidelines which numerous parties throughout throughout history came together on the basis of precedence and on the basis of practice uh, which caused the precedence and on their basis on their interpretation of some principles and the way they do things which historically has been com- has compounded into international law so if we are to talk about customary international law it's basic practice and this practice being converted to codified international law takes efforts and long standing uh, commitment by numerous countries all right so my interpretation is a little bit different right because for understanding there's an easier way to understand it it's very simple at a point of time we as a whole as a civilization came together to realize that certain things couldn't take place anymore right which means that the first truly international law which would be the 1857 geneva conventions uh, were primarily for prisoners of war and people who are non combatants who are frequently being engaged in the war right which means at that point of time for those people to be protected most of the primary countries came forward and agreed upon a framework of sorts which came to be known as ex- and accepted across the world now with respect to the same standard customary law applies the same way it is by its very name something that's been followed through for a long period of time or has been colloquially agreed by every particular nation in the particular region okay so i have a question considering that customary international law and codified international law to that extent is something that countries are inherently supposed to follow by principle and more often than not there are no such repercussions which usually follow in situations where international law is breached through or certain aspects of international law are not followed through upon the idea that countries will follow st- uh, certain principles already inherently exists like if i'm a country like denmark or switzerland i would follow aspects of law without that law ever being codified in the first place but however if i was a co- if i was a country like dprk or iran and i do not have any necessity or compulsion to follow a specific aspect of law what holds me in place to follow through with actually abiding by that source of law in the first place okay uh, now before we get that far uh, let's first look at what we understand by codified international law as well as customary international law right So when we talk about international law in general um does anybody want to go ahead with explaining the sources of international law itself in the first place which means going from customary international law as well as various codified international law which includes treaties domestic laws everything else So in response to your question uh, one of the things that we should consider is how exactly does international law come into effect or how does law itself born right So 
in order for law to be uh, to be birthed in the first place you require a situation to happen right or any sort of incident to take place now when that incident has taken place in the once it is taken place then it starts with countries coming together to resolve that particular incident now once this incident has been resolved in my opinion that is not law which has been formed but rather just a solution to a particular incident now when another similar incident of the same type has occurred again and another country has decided to use the resolve the resolving solution that was used previously in this current situation and uses something that has already happened as precedence in practice it is at that point that you start realizing that this is something that could turn into law but yet it has still not become law so then you follow through with having a bunch of countries coming together to realize that a particular solution in fact is something that we all can abide to and it is that understanding and interpretation amongst multilateral bases of countries that they decide to agree that all right we can start calling this law at this point it becomes customary international law now following through from there how does customary law is differentiated from codified law customary international law is something that we inherently understand and it is followed by custom codified international law is something that is codified it is written down and it is there in principle and it's expected to be followed right so once customary international law has been established by a group of countries it then translates into codified international law now when codified international law comes into place and a proper example of codified international law would be treaty law so what happens with codified international law as opposed to what happens with customary international law yeah uh, so now primarily a very simple example as to how this comes into effect right if we go back to treaty of westphalia even before treaty of westphalia the concept of borders always existed the concept of countries having their own right or having or having a claim to their own land already existed but post the 30 years war when treaty of westphalia actually came into existence that is when this this idea of customary law this custom that all right borders need to be respected that there is some kind of territorial integrity and some form of tradition and custom that peoples of every land who are governed by a head of state are composed of this was formulated into a proper document which we which we which we know as treaty of westphalia which basically gave a foundation to the concept of sovereignty so this is basically the transition from uh, customary international law to codified international law the reason customary international law still takes a lot of effect today is because customary international law is still very is is extremely powerful because um, if you if you look at the very basic ideas of from where of um, how we need to act or how countries need to act as lohit previously stated that international law is a very reactionary mechanism there's no proactive mechanism to it similar instances in the history have occurred in the past if you look at the hague conventions hague conventions weren't a very uh, a reactionary approach but a proactive approach which failed so at the end of the day customary international and the principles on which customary international law has been built for them to be implemented codified international law is needed and that happens through state practice that happens through precedences and that happens through situations right now if you look at annexation of crimea that set a precedence for itself if you look at syrian civil war which just occurred that has set numerous precedences precedences or even nicaragua versus united states of america the icj judgment so these are the kind of precedences that we are talking about which basically empower customary international law through codified means all right so we'll start with the basics right which is where does il come from so il can be divided into two parts that is codified law and customary law customary law in particular is where i'll be explaining the most of it customary law as understood by the very title in itself is a law that comes down through custom now custom is something that's been carried forward by multiple generations over time right now that is in itself the first pillar of customary law a law that has been 
not contested by anybody at some point of time and has stayed relatively uncontested for more than 40 years but people have different opinions so in certain cases it is 80 years as well and examples of this could be the Montevideo Convention which is which classifies statehood which has also been codified under the ILC as as of now but it still stands as customary law first second is the standard laid down by concurrence of major powers which does not exist anymore to the same degree as it used to before because of the existence of codified law but at a point of time that uh, there weren't internationally recognized bodies such as the United Nations regulating how international law works and without the precedence of the UN Charter uh, there was a difference there was a different time right at that point of time uh, the most common example is the concurrence of of the concurrence of major powers is the naval agreement right which means that at a point of time that multiple nations post the hundred years war were facing losses where uh, the American Civil War was also ongoing in the same time period uh, the major naval powers realized that they were losing far too many men not in combat but in the aftermath at which point of time uh, Spain Portugal uh, England Netherlands and a couple of other nations who were the major seafaring nations of the time came together and decided that uh, you know what we can't have this go on anymore and that is where the first naval treaty was born and it was accepted as customary law because these nations had an absolute uh, control over seafaring nations that is at that point of time let's go to the third one which is state practice now state practice by its very nature and by the words themselves is very simple to understand it is whatever policies or um, governmental principles a particular state runs by which means that at any point of time if a state changes its practices to reflect an international obligation that state practice can be constituted as following through with a particular customary international law which means that international obligation that the, uh, that the state shifted its state practice to now constitutes its adherence to that particular international law and that thereby making it customary international law. The last one is uh, opinio juris which is very similar to state practice a lot of people have trouble differentiating the two but opinio juris is something that is based upon a preemptory understanding of a state with respect to an international obligation. With respect to the same, if at any point in the past a particular nation has adhered to an obligation which is very similar to an obligation that it will adhere to in the future, like which has been laid down by a particular nation or a group of nations, their opinion juris from the past uh, reflects their acceptance of the same, which means that their acceptance or opinion juris is that of acceptance of that preemptory norm, which means that this would also entail that this norm becomes customary international law. Adding on to basically the sources of customary international law, another source which has uh, widely been uh, neglected in the international community is that there are certain domestic laws which have a lot of international consequence. For example, if you if, if we take the law in the Russian uh, constitution which came into being after Rus Russian Federation was formed, which was responsibility, responsibility to protect Russian citizens abroad. So this very this very concept this very concept was has been has enshri was enshrined in the customary international law as a responsibility to, to protect multiple times, but for this to become uh, coherent in nature, for this to become implementable in nature in the international community was when the concept of responsibility to protect was formed and the pillars of 
are to be uh, were established. So the transition that that we see from customary to codified international law is extremely important. Now, with respect to sources of international law, this transition also depends on how a particular international law is born or what is the source of that particular international law. Definitely, state practice and opinion jurists are extremely important, and for a really long time they have been followed through. But there are certain conventions, there are certain treaties which have been included in the customary international law by the virtue of them being in practice for a really long time. So the component of time is something that has been uh, also considered to convert a codified international law into customary international law. So imagine it like a two-way street. There are treaties which can go from codified international law to customary international law and there are treaties which can come from customary international law to codified international law. And both sides of it to be compared are basically R2P on one side and on the uh, former side that I was speaking is the uh, is is, uh, some, is something like the Geneva Convention. Now uh, here's the thing, right? Now when you talk about it being reactionary versus preemptive, how necessary is it? Do you think that it has to be reactionary as opposed to preemptive, right? Now you talked about the Hague Convention being preemptive at its time, but failing in the end to do what mm-hmm. it was supposed to do, right? But now say a few of the treaties that we have today, for example, the Arms Trade Treaty or any other, any other treaty that's commonly in in place today, had it been uh, preemptive as opposed to reactionary. Do you think it would have changed the way the world itself functioned? Okay, so since you brought up the Armstead Treaty and taking treaties along the same lines, right? The ones which are inherently there in order to prevent stuff from happening and it is codified. Now, the issue with most of these treaties are by very essence of them being treaties, it is very different from customary international law. The point is, to it, uh, any, every time a treaty comes into effect, there are parties to a treaty. Whereas when it comes to customary international law, it is expected that all countries follow through on customary international law. So when it comes to parties of a treaty or parties of codified international law, there are parties that can come up with a bunch of other objections or reservations. So even if there is a treaty, as a country, I can come up with reservations, I can come up with derogations, and I can come up with declarations. All right, And it is by virtue of that. So when I come up with reservations, it means that while I do understand the principles behind a specific existing codified law or a treaty, I still have certain reservations as in I am not fine with certain clauses. And if those clauses ever come into effect, I am not going to be okay with that. And I have no uh, expectation to follow through on that. Similarly, if you take the concept of derogations, right now, uh, taking in the armed state treaty as well as the rules of armed conflict specifically into consideration. So, the idea of rules of armed conflict and the application of international law, due, of international humanitarian law during armed, uh, armed conflict is that it, uh, the derogations that exist there is that since armed conflict is happening, there are certain rights that you are allowed to suspend in such situations. That's something that you inherently cannot force me not to do, right? So, for example, Every time armed conflict occurs, one fun, one basic right which is usually taken away from the people is, uh, for example, the right to assembly, which is have a large group of people assemble in a specific uh, region. The reason for that is again because of security purposes of the people themselves. So it is upon the idea that there are reservations that can occur from the idea of treaties in the inherently themselves that I believe that preempting stuff is very different from actually resolving in reactionary measures. Alright, uh, with respect to preemptiveness. Uh, specifically, when you consider like certain treaties with respect to ballistic missiles, the idea is that they have never been utilized, right? At a point of time that a certain instrument of war has never been used and the actual implications of the usage have never been seen, you can say that there has been no precedence of the same. But simultaneously, the world as a whole agrees that the fact that if it were to occur is so bad that we need to set a precedence in place means that without a particular preemptory norm per se, you have the existence of uh, 
consensus from the people about a particular thing which means that it does not in fact need at every point of time precedence for usage uh adding adding on to all of this so basically when when you debate uh if preemptiveness is actually necessary and if proactive uh, nature towards international law would be beneficial to the entire global community like if we um, look at the way things have been until now it has been very reactionary in nature but today as we face more global problems especially uh, problems which will not have a consequence today but will have a consequence probably 20 years from now that is how that is where international law needs to be developed right for example if you take problems like climate change the effects of climate change or the drastic consequences of climate change will not be present today itself but they're going to be present 20 years from now and that's where uh, that's where treaties such as the paris agreement comes into picture they are not reactionary in nature but they are proactive in nature now converting this into the field of military or into the field of politics is extremely difficult because over here the way historically things have happened is that people have recognized the problem some people have solved the problem then other people have adapted the problem through state practice and then it has become customary following which it has become codified in nature the problem here is that there are certain parties who are not ready to accept that there is a problem in place especially in the political sphere because of the vast different the, the vast spectrum of political ideologies and the variation of political ideology if you look at russia's policies and us's policy us's policies they are drastically different so them coming to, together on a political spectrum on a polit- on a political level for a certain problem to be proactively worked upon is extremely difficult in an ideal case yes it should happen and it can happen but in a real in a very realistic scenario it will not happen when it comes towards creation of treaties or international law in itself preemptively the thing is in order for you to proceed with creation of such treaties or law you need to recognize that a problem exists because your treaties are in the end a solution to a problem now you can always preempt a problem but if you're going to preempt the existence of a problem there are a lot of factors you're not taking into consideration more often than not countries do not agree that a problem that exists is a problem that universally exists and even if that problem exists which side of the problem is the one that they wish to tackle now uh, deciding on what measures of international law or what rules you implement which are then later turned into facets of international international law is something that you can recognize if an issue or a situation has taken place which tells you that there is a problem that exists now even the npt and the arms treaty and every such treaty multilateral treaty which came to place it happened on the basis that a certain incident has taken place now the arms treaty for example came into issue once he started realizing that the flow of small arms cross border especially like the issue of cross border trafficking the minute it uh, exceeded the basic amount that was even there as a threshold right especially in countries like latin america when the influx of small arms in response and contradiction to drug trade as and when it started increasing it then led to the fact that there needed to be something in order to combat the existence of this influent uh, import and export of drugs and small arms so unless you identify a problem you cannot come up with a common solution to it and after all your international law while you're setting precedents for the future is still a solution to an existing problem in my opinion right so i believe that treaties or international law in and of itself cannot be preemptive simply because if you take into consideration the way the new nuclear non proliferation treaty was born it was because of the effect of a new technological development in the form of a nuclear weapon right no one could have expected an impact as large as the hiroshima and nagasaki bombings before it happened and therefore the npt could not have been preemptive all of these treaties were formed as a result of some particular action and that's why they are inherently reactionary in nature if same way for the arms treaty like while it might be 
reasonable to expect that okay they might be able to predict there'll be a proliferation of weapons but you do not know to what scale it might happen and whether it actually warrants the formation of a global treaty that's why you cannot always have a preemptive measure and i think it's very very niche to even expect a preemptive measure for um situations such as this even if you take into consideration the existing laws regarding climate changes as the kyoto protocol and the paris agreement and other such documents even that in and of itself was reactionary all of this happened after the discovery of the ozone deterioration after explicit increase in pollution and there were negative effects of the same this so the ice caps melting even then it wasn't exactly preemptive now by definition what preemptive would mean is you try to stop a problem before it occurs so if this agreement were to be entered upon before we started no- noticing negative effects of climate change then you can call it pre- preemptive but in essence this international document the paris agreement and the kyoto protocol was also entered into action after something had already happened to worsen a situation now while you can consider climate change to be a problem that's going to occur further down the line in large scale impact you do realize it's making a huge impact on the way people are leading their lives right now so even now whatever changes are happening are reactionary in nature and not really preemptive because the scale of the matter is not really into consideration it's what is actually happening at the current instant right so specifically with that only the the problem when you say that there is absolutely nothing that we haven't done which is like completely reactionary in nature uh let's look at laws and laws right when we look at autonomous weapon systems and their utility per se uh it's vast it would prevent you uh, human loss of life in wars because then we wouldn't need humans to fight our wars and eventually it might end up being the internal solution right but even so before the advent of any such machines having a capability that would actually harm us to any significant degree people but way back in 2013 when the uh, hrc asked the special rapporteur to find to submit a report for the same they called for a moratorium on that and that moratorium was extended which means that at, as of now that moratorium still stands for direct testing of said weaponry which means that this is a preemptive measure and not a reactionary one because uh, any utilization of any such weaponry is far far in the future now when we classified international law in the beginning we classified it in two broad branches which is customary international as well as codified international law now while there is certain debate about the sources of customary international law itself um now what do you think are the sources for codified international law and how do you think that comes into practice and what do you think is the basic difference between the two in with respect to both their implementation as well as the sources that they have towards codified international law itself uh so i think sources of customary international i mean comprehensively discussed now when you look at codified international law the primary source of codified international law is mult is treaty law is mult is multiple nations or even two nations coming together to form a treaty between themselves which acts as a law between them or between multiple states now for example the washington treaty which formed the nato or the san francisco san francisco Conf- uh, san francisco conference and san francisco treaty which formed the un charter these were multilateral treaties which were widely accepted and this came to be known as the this became codified international law now there has been uh, the source of codified international law if you look at the inspiration part a lot of codified international law is, is inspired from customary international law because that is what the ba- that, that is what the basic problem is but another situation that we need to take into consideration as i previously stated is that the reason codified international law takes precedence over customary international law is its dynamic nature and this dynamic nature of codified international law comes from the very fact that codified international law is extremely reactionary in nature 
this reactionary nature comes from precedences, comes from situations which the world has seen, and that is how they decide to deal with certain situations. For example, for example, the uh, annexation of Crimea, annexation of Crimea, or and the ICJ uh, Nicaragua USA case, they gave a lot of precedences for on the on the subject of sovereignty, which were already enshrined in the Treaty of Westphalia, but these very precedences set them into stone and made people realize that already this is actually a problem and there needs to be certain solutions to address these problems and that is how codified international law is also derived in this world okay so with respect to customary and codified international law see first taking international law upon itself right what happens when you break or violate the principles of international law is something that is heavily debated upon when you take customary international law what happens when i as a person violate a custom there is the very nature of it being customary is the fact that there is no repercussion that I'm going to expect simply because there's nothing that has been defined or no law that is defined saying that has defined a repercussion for the specific issue. Whereas when I take codified international law, a lot of the treaties do say that in there are often clauses within codified international law within treaties that say that in a situation where this treaty has been violated, these are the possible repercussions that can occur. Now the point is within treaties and within codified international law, when you specifically worded saying that these are the customs, these are the principles that you're expected to follow, these are the repercussions that can come into it, these are certain reservations, derogations, and uh, declarations that you can have with respect to existing uh, treaties or codified law, it then sets to some extent in stone that these are what is expected out of you. But then again, a question I always have with respect to international law is, what happens if I do violate even codified international law? Because even if I do violate codified international law, let's say I violate the principles of the United Nations Charter, which is the gravest form of violation that I can make being a sovereign nation. Once I do that, at most, a country can take me to the ICJ or the international community can help me add contempt, right? Saying that, all right, this country has violated international law and we are all going to stand against them. But my question is, what happens after that? Because at no point is, a, is the entire international community or the United Nations going to wage war or invade another country because they violated international law, right? So my question is, what are the repercussions of international law, of violating international law? Uh, all right. So just to add to uh, that very sentence about how codified international law governs the entire international community, right? So the, the very basis for codified international law to even be respected in the world is the customary international law. And this is something that I wanted to shed a light upon. That's basically the concept of pactum servanda, right? Or all the agreements need to be honored. This is this was a principle which was enshrined in the customary international law, which came into which came into basis in the codified in the codified international law through Vienna Convention on Law of Treaties. Now, when you okay, the, on the on the very on the second question about how the international community would act or what would happen if codified international law is not followed through and numerous times in the history we have seen what can happen be it the war on terror resolution be it uh, formation of the united allied uh, command against north korea or be it in, uh, be, be it the intervention in iraq or somalia or any other peacekeeping operations that are present in the world today all of these are the are, are a testament to the fact that united nations and codified international law works and in case you mess up then there are repercussions that need to be watched out for Right, so the con the question is not really of whether there are repercussions or no repercussions, it's the fact that how effective these repercussions are. For example, if you look at the sanctions, the UN sanctions that were placed on North Korea, just because there are some non-compliant states who continue <coughs> to trade with North Korea, they manage to continue business as usual almost within that region without many repercussions, right? Now the same way, if you look at a country like the United States of America or Russia or China, these large countries have the capability to function nearly as to nothing has happened despite certain repercussions being placed on them. 
So there is this kind of asymmetry between the impact of a repercussion placed on a smaller country and that on a much larger country like the United States of America. Now that is what needs to be addressed. It might look from an outside perspective that there are no repercussions for violation of international law, but that's not true. It's simply how effective these repercussions tend to be when it comes to implementation after um, after all said and done. Right. So, um, so the basic point I see here is that customary international law need not have any specific repercussions apart that the codified international law has. Right. Especially when Lo talked about different clauses in treaties themselves talking about the repercussions to different to violating that particular treaty. Right. So, considering the lack of repercussion or lack of effectiveness of the repercussions as Shyans put it, is there any point to having customary international law that is not codified also? Uh, it's simple standard, right? Co- codified international law covers a very small ambit, which means that less than maybe 50% of international law is codified, which means that at every point of time when there is a particular problem that arises in the international community, the primary stakeholder, like the primary law that we follow is customary law because of the idea that it is so broad that its ambit covers uh, all of these right which means that an overarching structure that forms behind codified law is that of customary law at every point of time the principle of good faith also applies which means that in terms of customary law nations generally do uphold their obligations which means that they do in good faith consent to those obligations and then uh, in the very same way follow through with them at which point of time we see relevance to customary law and there is still a value attached to it which means that in case there is a conflict between customary law codified law and the un charter there is a clearly defined order of precedence which means that at every point of time in only in the case that codified law or the un charter is unable to actually go through with a particular problem at that point of time customary law applies okay um so with respect to what you're saying itself um now when you talk about customary law uh, un charter as well as codified law coming into play for a particular issue and let's take your own scenario where the un charter as well as codified law is not simply not capable enough to deal with a particular problem now isn't the while you talked about the advantages of customary law being broad and being an overarching scheme behind codified law in the case that codified law simply does not cover a particular this thing does not does it the fact that it's very interpretive in nature does that not affect the validity or does not that affect the implementation of customary law the fact that interpretations may vary and because of the vari- variance of interpretation customary international law itself is pointless all right this is how law works right specifically based on precedence right this has been amply stated here but the reasoning for these this precedence and the formation of the laws which are implicit in nature post the formation of that precedence is simple it is that we do not have the time to deliberate upon that issue constantly thereby reducing the amount of time used in deliberation if we have a particular precedence with respect to a particular action which is similar in nature which means that we have a particular course of action which is appropriate and has been accepted by all the people involved right at which point of time given that there is no existing precedence for a particular problem the nations would agree in the same uh, ways that they originally formed particular precedences and form a law for the new problem uh, so adding on to this i completely agree with what shivang has said and adding on to this we do understand that right now in the current world where codified international law is gaining a lot of popularity and a lot of things are happening on that front the very reason or the identification of a problem comes through customary international law now if you 
let's let's go back to something like 1942 or 1941 where there was an agreement signed between united kingdom and nazi germany to not invade rest of czechoslovakia but at that time but the very problem that arose there was that nazi germany went on to invade it on a legal basis this was violation of customary international law because in good faith nazi germany did not respect the uh, the the, the bierhall agreement that uh, nazi germany and united kingdom had formed this was when the entire deliberation on the problem started and that's what's happening today as well so i think the way we need to look at customary international law in today's perspective is that it is more of a problem identifier rather than a problem solver to a degree yes it is also a problem solver but the reason why we solve a problem through codification is because it is enshrined in the customary international law otherwise we just wouldn't know what's going to, what's what we should do and it will be anar- anarchy completely see the way i look at it is that since as we already established more often than not customary international law is a source for codified international law so by virtue of that when i'm establishing that i'm going to take principles of customary international law and codify it so that it is clear and precise that these are the basic expectations that are there for me customary law is essentially a means to an end the end being that every law or anything that you wish to establish or set in stone is essentially codified it is to that aspect that yeah customary international law is necessary and effective until the point where everything that we need to codify is inherently codified okay um now let's take it back another step right um a lot of when you talk about customary international law the applicability of law in general um the major thing we talk about is precedence right now especially when you talk about codified law being reactionary in nature which means it keeps evolving or developing over time uh even when you talk about the npt for example not being made until a, a nuclear weapon was made in the first place and used right so how important is precedence or how valid is precedence of say a certain amount of time period ago when things have clearly changed when circumstances have changed how mm-hmm. applicable is precedence even in interpretation of customary or codified law for that matter okay uh, i'll start with that so when you're taking so the npt is something that you use in order to ensure that uh, other nations don't heavily and uh, start building their weapons technology or their nuclear technology but i'll give you another example of where treaties and agreements bet- multilateral agreements which essentially do turn out to be codified international law do evolve over time right if you take the start and sort treaties the start one start two moving on to the sort treaties all of these were essentially established and they kept changing now these are essentially multilateral treaties or more likely bilateral treaties between the us and russia about building their ballistic missiles now as in when it came uh, they crossed the threshold that was expected out of them or as in when one of these treaties failed immediately another treaty was born out of that saying that this is going to be the new way to go forward another example of this would be the jcpoa now the jcpoa uh, or the iran nuclear deal was essentially established in order to prevent iran from uh, building or enriching its nuclear program but as soon as usa as soon as donald trump came into power in usa he immediately pulled usa out of the jcpoa now while it's highly debated on whether or not this was a good idea or not the point behind that was considering that the iran nuclear deal had an expiration date saying that after 8 years after which the iran nuclear deal came into uh, came into play uh, iran would be allowed to end its nuclear program however in this situation uh, the reason why donald trump pulled usa out was the fact that after 8 years there is nothing which stops iran from building up their nuclear weapons so it is by virtue of the fact that uh international law or codified international law is reactionary as in as in when you see developments happening the laws themselves and the treaties that exist themselves are developed which are why there exists amendments to codified international law as in when something of that uh, necessity is required right so if there re- exists a development 
which causes that a precedence which is taken with respect to something that probably happened a hundred years ago is not particularly effective right now. The fact that amendments keep happening to different treaties is to show that there has been a change in how the world order as well as countries, uh, inter-country dynamics work at this point of time. Um, I think the reason why uh, uh, until until now the international law or codified international law has been extremely reactionary in nature is because the nations as a whole have not been able to gauge the problems that they might encounter and even if they do they haven't agreed upon those problems being universal in nature or those problems being for everybody even now if you look at climate change climate change is not something which is universally accepted so even if you have you you have proactive um, you have proactive uh, agreements and conventions to stop it it will never be universally accepted because there are certain countries in the world who think climate change is still uh, uh, is is still fake is still a uh, hoax right now if you are if you are to consider if you are to consider uh, the reason why uh, international law cannot take a proactive approach in practice is that international community as a whole has been known to be extremely anarchical in nature there is no higher set of citizens or there's no higher set of countries which can form policies and which will be abided by by all the countries and this is and this happens through un charter right which is one of the most widely accepted agreements till date. No other agreement has come close to being as widely accepted as UN Charter is. But still, all the principles of UN Charter are not agreed by everybody. And so, it is also not part of the customary international law yet. Now, uh, for in a very ideal case, yes, proactive approach needs to be take, taken up in uh, the international community. But that is not happening in a very realistic stage because people, countries don't agree. And there's no higher set of countries which can form policies and laws which will be followed by everybody else. Right. Um, so let's cover one last aspect of international law, which I think was brought up a couple of times during our discussion as well. Um, the infamous state law superseding international law, right? Um, now, why do you think that particular aspect of international law itself derives from and how do you think it affects the implementation of international law, right? Because as we stated, um, a lot of international law itself falls under interpretation and, and the lack of repercussions or a lack of uh, effectiveness of the repercussions. And on top, and, and the added onus of state law superseding international law, um, how do you think this affects the applicability of international law itself? So, when you consider that international law in itself is based upon states uh, acceding to a particular uh, mutual consensus, right? At that point of time, you have to realize that the only way states would accede to that was that they would have an out, which is something that's been followed from time immemorial, right? So there is a priority order per se, which means that when you look at the principles in question, you look at uh, how less uh, less specialist takes precedence over less generalist, which is something that's a preemptory norm, that is part of due cogence. At that point of time, we have to realize that the state law in itself is a far more valuable entity to the state as compared to international law. Which means that the followance of international law is not guaranteed by the state, but the state itself makes its own laws, which means that it would be more liable to follow through with its own laws. Right. And how do you think this this applicability of state law, right, when you talk about it being an out especially, so how does this affect the implementation of international law itself? Do you think it sort of uh, undermines the authority of international law? Okay, see, the point of international law coming into effect in the first place was the fact that it is supposed to be idealized as a custom and is supposed to be something to help individual countries cope with 
existing in harmony with other countries themselves. So the idea behind allowing state law to supersede international law is that different... See, now international law is applicable to all countries uh, together, which does not take into account their geographical location, their geopolitical location, or just the political nature of a country within itself. Now, taking that into consideration, considering that state law itself considers an individual state's location as well as the political stability within that specific country, it is inherent that you need to understand that what happens within a country should be within the purview of that own country, while it still takes into accordance that there exists international law and there are some ambits of international law that they will, that they will follow. I think other than you know, Lex Specialist over Lex Generalist has been uh, widely uh, argued over here, but even other than leaving the part about Lex Specialist and Lex Generalist, where a specific law would take precedence over general law, I think the reason state law is, is allowed to take precedence over international law is because of the very nature of international law or very people who are in, uh, involved in international law and state law themselves. Now, in, a, in state law, a person or an individual is given certain rights, is reserved is guaranteed certain rights but the very basics of international law is that countries are not treated as persons countries are not allotted the same number of rights as an individual person is given and that is that is the difference between something like right to life and sovereignty a, a de debate can be can happen where sovereignty can be con compared to right to life for a country but it but it still isn't right to life is something which is guaranteed for an individual whereas sovereignty is guaranteed to a whole nation and there is a clear bifurcation of which takes precedence over what and that is our individual individual's rights take precedence over country's rights and i think that is the very reason why in practice state law has been allowed to take precedence over international law multiple times in in the in, in previous history as well and if you look at the uh, regional arrangements and if the united nations mechanisms and the regional arrangement mechanisms work or not then over there there are provisions in the united nations charter itself such as article 103 which clearly state that a country's obligations to UN Charter will supersede its obligation to any, uh, any, any, uh, any other regional organization or any bilateral agreement. Now, that is one attempt that the UN Charter has made, where maybe international law or the principles and obligations of of the United Nations Security Council or the United Nations may take precedence over state law. But in practice, this does not happen, and this basically cannot happen. Right. Uh, so, while there is little debate on why state law itself does supersede international law, now, how do you think it's detrimental towards the applicability of international law, right? Let's take a very simple example of Myanmar. Now, Myanmar with its own constitution and citizenship bills, as well as considering the fact that they claim that the Rohingyans in, present in the Rakhine state are insurgents and using that as an excuse to, uh, to commit mass genocide, right? Now, genocide as a whole itself is, I think, agreed that, internationally agreed that it is a it is a crime of a crime against humanity and hence it does fall under any some ambit of international be it customary or codified um, now the fact that myanmar can use the justification that state law supersedes international law to just to use that as justification to uh, say that they, their citizenship act exists like this because of this um, the, their interpretation of insurgency is uh, according to their state law itself um, how do you think it's detrimental towards the applicability of IL, right with as per the genocide convention or customary international law Okay, so now if you take into consideration a very specific scenario as Myanmar or maybe even something uh, something very general which might happen in the future, which has happened in the past, where a country has used its uh, provisions in the state law to commit actions which, which, which may be invalid on an international level. Now, the question there is, the problem over here is that there is only one body on the international level which can take any kind of directive action or strong action against a nation 
which is going against the principles enshrined in the international or principles enshrined in the UN Charter, which is the United Nations Security Council. So, on a very application basis, I think it boils down to the threshold and to the severity of things that are, that are causing, while at the same time, general understanding amongst the nations. Now, especially in the Myanmar crisis, if uh, Republic of India, if India, Bangladesh, Bhutan, and other uh, Asian countries were to come together and say that no, what you're doing is wrong and would have pushed Myanmar into isolation. It was one of the measures that they would have taken to ensure that Myanmar does not use the justification of state law or international law and get away with this. But that did not happen because on a political front, on a very realistic front, this does not happen and there are a lot of background, backroom political games which are played on a very regular basis. Okay, um, so I think with that we'll come to the end of the discussion. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, um, thanks for tuning into the first episode of the Dispute Random Podcast. Uh, if you liked what you heard and want to support us, please do share us with your friends and colleagues or whoever else you know. Uh, if you want to reach out to us for any queries or anything at all, uh, feel free to mail us at podcast.disputandum at gmail.com. That's podcast.disputandum at gmail.com. Thanks, guys.